and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Marion Ehrenberg. Marion's book, The Language of Dreams, is a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. On this episode, Marion talks about how her work as a psychologist intersected with her new career as a writer. She also offers advice to writers interested in pursuing self-publishing. Marion starts our conversation with a reading from The Language of Dreams. To set up the scene that I want to read from, uh, it's important to know that in the language of dreams, Avery is the protagonist, a very talented psychologist in her 40s who's great at taking care of her clients, but behind the scenes, she's struggling with some of her own problems. Um, Early on in the story, uh, the reader learns that as a girl, Avery was traumatized by the death of her beloved older brother, Sebastian, who suffered from schizophrenia and died by suicide. And now in her life, when the reader enters the story, she's she's struggling with a failing marriage to her husband and she's losing hope of having a baby and the family she's always craved. So in the following scene, Avery has just uncovered a heartbreaking secret And after a sleepless and despairing night, she finally falls asleep and has an important dream. And I wanted to read to you about the dream that she has. Avery's eyelids flutter. Exhausted, she lets go and feels herself softening into sleep. She's drifting through thick billows of paper white clouds and brilliant blue sky, her eyes squinting against the bright light. Braced for the landing, she pulls her knees tightly to her chest. She's moving faster and faster like a human missile gathering speed. Her skin is fiery hot when she breaks through the cold water surface. The brilliant splashes of water caught against the harsh sunlight mesmerize her like tiny sparkling shards of glass with hints of color exploding around her in slow motion. Avery hears gurgling sounds and then nothing, just silence, as she's carried downward into the depths of the disturbing waters, the light above becoming dimmer and dimmer in the distance. She's spinning, first slowly and then quickening, as if being sucked downward into the swirling motion of a drain. Avery feels herself hitting something hard and her instinct is to close her eyes and tighten her grip around her knees. The blow to her head slows her movement through the water and Avery opens her eyes to check her surroundings. She sees a man's fist and arm near her face, the rest of his person occluded by darkness and swirling water. The fist comes closer, so close she can make out his wedding band of gold and tiny black diamonds. Roland, help me, she tries to scream, but her mouth fills with water. His fist opens, and from it escapes his necklace, the one he never takes off. The chain floats away in the water like a silverfish as he too disappears. 
He's gone for me. She can't breathe. Panic streams through her body. She presses her face into her knees as her body slips into unconsciousness. Still inside her dream, Avery is jolted awake by another impact. This time, the blow with the foreign object releases her tight hold on herself, her arms letting go of her knees and then her limbs unfolding. This is the end. I'm dying. She can see herself now from down below, looking up, the outlines of her person spread out above her in the water like a starfish, dark and shimmering against the faint light still cast from where she's broken through into the water. The feeling of panic from realizing she's drowning suddenly eases and gives way to the faintest sensation of hope. Something is moving through the water toward the outlines of her starfish self floating above. It's the shape of a young man. With a soft, wide-armed movement, Avery can see him enveloping the sea star shape of herself so that the stretched out limbs become discernible again as her legs, her arms, her face, and her hair. She's in herself again now, unable to see her form from down below. His arms circle her waist. She leans back against his chest. It's when she feels completely safe that Avery knows it's her brother, Sebastian. They are traveling swiftly into the darkest reaches of the waters. And as she feels him propelling them, Avery is filled with a distinct feeling of love. That they are in long dark corridors of water taking twists, turns and switching directions doesn't bother her because she trusts he's taking her somewhere better. She must have fallen asleep in his arms because she, when she wakes up again, still inside her dream, Avery sees turquoise water illuminated by sunlight. Sebastian lets go of her waist and takes her hand, pulling her around to face him in the water. She sees his beloved face. Elated, she grabs his other hand too and pulls him close. His hair wavy like hers, floats around his face, but then she can see he's shaking his head. Sebastian releases one of Avery's hands and points upward to the water's surface. Avery feels the hand she's still holding and gives it that same quick double squeeze they'd use to communicate as children. Come with me, she is saying, but he shakes his head again and then shrugs his shoulder in that same movement of childhood, that means, sorry, sis, no can do. Avery realizes she can't hold her breath any longer. Sebastian can see it too. And with both hands, he reaches for her waist one more time and gives her the push upward she needs to propel to the surface. Thank you. So my first question for you, um, is who are you? Who am I? Um, I am a uh, a woman in my early sixties. Um, I'm a psychologist, and I have a long history of training psychologists. And it's really only in these last years that I've made a dramatic change in my career path. I still practice as a psychologist, but I have 
launched uh, a career, a new career. It's something I've always wanted to do, which is to write psychological fiction. Excellent. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your psychological fiction, but I wondered if we could start with um, talking about the language of dreams and how that book started. Mm. Um, that book has a very long history. It's been with me for a long time. And its inception, I would say, was when I moved to Vancouver to go to graduate school there. And in the summer before school started, the instructor for the psychotherapy course asked us to read a book and it was called August. And it was the story of um, a psychiatrist and her patient. And the um, idea behind assigning that book was to whet our appetite for psychotherapy, for learning psychotherapy, and it did. But it also made me really think about how interesting it would be for myself to write psychotherapy fiction, especially once I knew what I was doing. So that's how it started and busy life, family, career, never got to come back to it. Um, I had a background in literature and uh, it wouldn't go away, you know, it wouldn't, uh, the story wouldn't leave me and it kept developing. And then finally, I got a chance to write it once I early retired from my job at UVic. Yeah. And so what was it like to, to kind of merge your background and expertise uh, as a psychologist with fiction because uh, I could imagine you probably got people wondering where the line was of, of fiction and memoir so what was that like for you to combine those two parts of yourself um it was uh interesting and uh and challenging early on I made a decision um that in I would never in any way write about my clients so um, however, there are so many themes that arise in psychotherapy, so many characters, you know, um, themes of loss, trauma, all, all kinds of things that come up and up again. So I would say that that allowed me to create um, interesting characters and uh, authentic characters um, for my story. And uh, also as a psychologist, it was kind of fun to think about taking things a little bit to an extreme. Like who would be the most challenging client who could show up in your practice, especially when you're going through your own stuff. And that's how I came up with, with the character of Claire, the young woman, Claire. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you talked about reading August as a student, and I, I, I was reflecting on kind of. It seems like there's like, uh, we've always had an interest in or a curiosity as readers, as viewers, consumers of content, uh, in the therapist patient relationship. I'm thinking of the Esther Perel podcast and in treatment and couples therapy. What do you think it is about these stories that we are so interested in? 
I think that there is um, a, a curiosity about what actually happens in that private space of, of therapist and client and a curiosity about not just what goes on there, but really what is it about? How are people helped? Is it what I think it is? And for people who are experienced on either end, and that is some feedback that I've had who are clients who've experienced psychotherapy and maybe especially therapists who quietly work in this you know, room feel very much seen and um, interested in sort of sitting back and reading twists and turns in a story that feels authentically, however, like psychotherapy. The way that maybe some programs, some movies, shows um, portray the psychotherapy relationship, but often in my experience, it's not all that close to, you know, what is actually going on in psychotherapy. So there's a range, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what were you cautious of uh, as you were representing that relationship? Because, of course, in the list that I that I gave, we have the more like uh, realistic interpretations, which would be like Esther Perel or, or couples therapy. And then we have in treatment, which is, of course, an entirely fictionalized thing. Um, yeah. And I think we I often talk with uh, folks who write about mental illness like this, too. There's so much stigma around these things for folks who haven't participated in that. So what were you aware of in portraying that as someone who does have that insight? Yeah, um, well, um, I I wanted to take uh, real care and be sensitive how um, I portrayed things. So I, I was careful of my of my words and the way that I am in my practice of what I say and how I say it. Um, so that was very important to me. I had a sense of that I needed it to be okay, really for anyone, any of my clients and many of my clients have found the book um, to read this and feel okay or better with it and not to feel, you know, startled or that maybe I was, you know, um, embellishing something about mental health and mental suffering in a way that I didn't want to. But I knew I could also that sort of as a sensitivity, but I also knew that I could be, you know, creative and exaggerate things in terms of blurred boundaries in my story because it is fiction, right? Yeah. yeah. You talked a little earlier, you talked about the the themes that have come up for you in your, uh, as a psychotherapist, themes of th loss and trauma. Something that I was thinking about with this book is is trust. And the wobbly line that trust can be, uh, we push it back and forth, it seems, and renegotiate where that is. Uh, yeah. But of course, trust is important as a writer, too, because you are establishing trust with your reader. How did you uh, consider the reader experience when you were working on The Language of Dreams? I, I wanted to create an interesting and um, authentic story 
but I also uh, wanted to uh, not be a teacher or um, a, you know, therapist sort of telling people how it is. So I think I wanted to really be careful to allow my readers to discover whatever they wanted to discover in the book, um, to have an exposure to that world. And it's interesting what came to me quite a number of times in terms of reader feedback beyond, oh, I like the twist and turns and the big surprise in the middle. I would hear people saying, you know what? I've never been in psychotherapy. And I loved reading what went on between the, the psychologist and the client because I found myself feeling encouraged or helped or soothed. It, you know, it allowed me to see how that might happen in the safety, as you say, the trust in a, in a room with a trusted uh, therapist. So that meant a lot to me that I, I felt that if people are experiencing it that way, then maybe beyond telling a good story, maybe I'm doing something that's important and, and helpful in terms of exposing the reader to that world safely, right? They can just sit behind their book and read it. Yeah. Go and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what, so what brings, I mean, there's the, your, your expertise as a psychotherapist comes through in the book, but also I think what is so compelling about the story is the two, the two main characters, Claire and Avery. Could you talk a bit about how you developed those characters? And, and I, as you imagine, the story has been with you for a long time. So I imagine they have changed and evolved with you as the story has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, in Avery, what I was uh, trying to, create was um you know a woman who was um in the job and developed her expertise in part which is there's a whole literature about it but it's really true in part because of um you know the losses and vulnerabilities she had herself experienced that is often a part of how um, people become therapists and as long as those issues are you know understood and well handled it can it can I think it allows a therapist to be even a bit more sensitive and compassionate because they understand you know what it might be what it might be like for their clients so I wanted to uh, build uh, an interesting and um you know kind of moving history that helps us to understand how avery became the psychologist that she has become and is quite you know good at her job but how she still holds the same vulnerabilities and that those might be uh, her her blind spots or places where like her marriage uh places where she isn't seeing things clearly and um, needs her own kind of help. So her long-term analyst who she's re returned to. Um, and then I wanted to, that's sort of where 
Claire came in, when I think about a very challenging client, someone who might change your life, not just change how you practice, but really change you because clients do change therapists. I would say every client has changed me in some way. And I would say that Claire, like that was, you know, big time change. <laughs> so um, I wanted to uh, show, and I really I got, you know, you start to dream about these characters and so forth. And I certainly did. So I wanted to um, show that the importance of when Avery and Claire meet, where Claire is, how angry she is about her own history, um, how unhappy she is to be there, and um, right, and how she likes to sort of, you know, find the scoop on the on the doctor. She really hates that that power imbalance, and that's that's real. So I wanted to. I wanted them to meet at a point that was important where Avery was struggling, losing, you know, feeling like she was running out of time, that her life, that her family wasn't what she'd always hoped to create. Um, and for Claire to kind of find out about that in some way and for there to be, and you know, an exchange and growth and friction between them about, the very issues that where their where their uh, lives intersect at that point in time. So that is what I tried to do. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to chat a little bit about how the book was published because the language of dreams is we've we've all double checked this I think at the BC Newcom Book Prizes, but we believe it's the first self published book to appear on one of our shortlists. And I wondered what your response was to the announcement of your book being included in this year's shortlist. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I was thrilled. <laughs> and um, I, I, when I was, you know, walking down my path at this point in my life, it won't be any surprise to you that it's hard to uh, find uh, to secure uh, the help of a literary agent got close a few times and it didn't quite work out and I just thought I just want to do this I don't want to wait I don't want to sit I want to get this book out into the world um, and so so I did with some great help in terms of the independent publisher that I that I did choose and um, it was very, you know, it was really validating in terms of, um, you know, quality of writing and that perhaps I had a, a future in this, that the book was well received, but also by, you know, by a pretty important um, book award group. So that that was great it was it was it was motivating and it also made me feel honestly um having judged things and you know sat on committees and so forth that it made me feel like it was fair there are many book awards where either it has to be independently published 
or if it's independently published, don't bother to send it in kind of a thing. Yeah. But I want to tell you the really interesting twist on the story that I did <laughs> not anticipate at all. So um, after the uh, prizes, the finalists were announced, I heard from a very experienced literary agent and very smart too, because he didn't, probably helped him not to have to go through hundreds and hundreds of queries. And so he contacted me and congratulated me and said, I would like to read your book. And I said, I would be delighted if you read my book. And he did read it um, and he, he, he really liked it. Um, and he liked the kind of fiction that I wrote. And then he wanted to hear about, you know, what, what I had in mind for my next book in quite a lot of detail. So he wanted to, I think, be certain that it wasn't the, the one book wonder thing. Yeah. And so we met and we talked and um, he, uh, I signed up with him. So I now have uh, an excellent literary agent. So it's like a, a side effect or a silver lining. And we've talked about it. We've laughed about it. He never would have found me, you know, um, and I wouldn't have found him were it not for your, for your book prize, because he, he values, uh, he, the company, the literary agency is in Toronto, but my agent actually lives in Victoria now. So he watches these book prizes, I think, um, quite carefully, sort of how he selects books for reading and so forth too. So that, so that happened. So independent publishing wasn't, for me, kind of a, a way of doing this only to get the book out um, and to get started. That was a part of it. Um, but it was also uh, all the things that they say is is really nice about independent publishing, I would say is probably true or was true in my experience. So really, you get a lot of help, but um, you get to decide. Right. There's like, really, what is my cover image? What do I want? Um, rather than maybe more of a, a, a marketing view on it. Well, you know, we think that cover might not work or even um, suggestions, editorial suggestions, but really leaving it up to the author to at the end to, cho to choose their own to choose their own words. So, yeah. I wondered, um, you know, for folks who are considering maybe going the independent publishing uh, route, what would you suggest or recommend based on your experience? I would uh, recommend, there's a lot of, there. I think there's a lot of self-publishing companies that are um, very uh, money oriented and, you know, do kind of play into the, the author's fear of not getting published. So I think you want to research carefully the company that you choose. So I chose uh, Friesen Press, which is local. It's been around for a long time. I looked at some of their books. I I read reviews. I, I met with them. Um, and, uh, and it did turn out to be a, a very positive experience and what they 
purported they would do is what they they actually uh, did offer. So that's on that side of it. And then I see people who are, um, and some people are very good at it. I I, I wouldn't be who um, are part of like self publishing groups, and they're they're basically. Uh, doing it completely themselves and then just loading it up and i can't imagine doing that i can't imagine not having you know several uh, layers of you know editing in terms of what i put out there but some people do have that confidence but then what can happen is i think without some kind of help it would be very easy to put out a book that later you might not be entirely happy with or where you get unexpected feedback. So it's a lot harder than it looks and you probably need some help in some way um, to do to do that. And I certainly felt I needed help and mentorship and all kinds of things that I did in developing my book. That was Marion Ehrenberg. Marion is the author of The Language of Dreams, which is a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jessica Vaughn in Erbner. Jessica's book, That's Not My Sweater, is a finalist for the 2023 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.